Oh, a wise guy, eh? He's the fantasy baseball wise guy. I'll talk with one of my favorite guests. It's Gene McCaffrey, and he's next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 8th. It's show number five of the 2022 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Tuesday Tout edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball, also a fantasy baseball columnist at The Athletic. We'll talk about his early drafts, the wisdom of drafting top closers early, and we'll have a position-by-position review of players, including a boon and a bane at every position. It's another big expert interview with another big expert. It's Gene McCaffrey. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? You some kind of wise guy? Indeed, and we are going to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Tuesday Tout Edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball, also a fantasy baseball columnist at The Athletic. Gene, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been a while. Yeah, it has. Nice to be here. How many drafts have you played so far this year, Gene, and how many are to come yet? I am almost finished my third, which is the great fantasy baseball invitational. We're in the reserve rounds. I've done two others, and I will do, I hope, a main event at the NFBC. And then I'll probably do the Athletic has a, a best ball competition. And I've already, I'm already in one best ball, so that will be my second best ball. And so that, that'll be it. I'm going to keep it pared down this year. Is your best ball competition the uh, Raz Slam, or are you playing in one of the, the uh, NFBC ones? Uh, it's one of the NFBC ones. and uh, But as I say, I will do the, the athletic one, too, to get to it. I like the format. I kind of like the format as well, especially the absence of uh, in-season work that it kind of entails. That To me, that's a, a big advantage if you want to draft uh, extra teams uh, without adding extra work. Of course, it's a, it's a really... Good idea. In your TGFBI draft, how did it go? Uh, I did not get the team that I thought I was going to get by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, really difficult draft. I'm kind of happy with with my team, but um, it's not full of players that I thought I was going to wind up with. Uh, I think it's balanced, though, and I uh, I got a lot of power, and I took my shot with Mondesi, uh and uh, no, I think it's pretty balanced, and uh, and I got two lesser closers, um, which I think is going to work this year. And uh, I'm reasonably happy with it. It's a work in progress. Were you picking in the middle or at one of the ends? This was in the middle. Um, I picked eight, and uh, you know sometimes I like picking in the middle. I, I I wanted to pick in the middle for this one because I had already picked it uh, on the end. I was a 15 on my uh, draft champion, so I wanted to try a, uh, a different position this year. You know, I, I wanted to break it up so that I could uh, have a variety of options. And uh, But I'm not crazy about the eight spot, I'll tell you that. 
What don't you like about it? Because I actually prefer, I'm in 15 in, uh, in the TGFBI, and I actually enjoyed it way more than I thought I was going to, and I thought I had a really good draft from there. But ordinarily, when I do my Kentucky Derby gene, it's, uh, I always go 7, 8, 9, 6, 10, you know, like that. I want to be in the middle because I don't like that long wait between the, between the picks, you know, right. because you get caught on the run so often. Right, it's a trade-off. Um, I, I like making two picks, but as you say, the, the the weight could be a real bitch. But I, I mean, I think it would. It's just the circumstances of this particular draft is that uh, these guys are good and they keep my my players. Um, so, I mean, whether that's a function of the draft spot or not is probably not. But it just seems to me that that's that's the way it's going. And very few gifts that I've got. Usually in any draft, I, I feel that, I get, that I'll get two or three real gifts. But, uh, I, I mean, I'm, the players that I want, I have had to reach for, with the exception of getting Ozzy Albies in the second round, which is a bit of a, uh, I mean, it's not a, you know, it's not a great gift, but it was a little bit of a gift. I like him. I did not expect to get him. You wouldn't have got him in, in my draft because I took him at the very first pick of the second round. My plan was to try to get a couple of good infielders in that position and then scramble from there. Uh, I got Machado and uh, and Albies to c- try to set at least a little bit of a stolen base foundation. It didn't pan out the way I was hoping in, in that regard. But uh, when you were sitting in that eighth spot in the first round, uh, what was your strategy as far as uh, how you wanted to do those early rounds? Uh, well, I was pretty sure that I was going to take Corbin Burns if I could, if he got to me, and he did, and I did. And uh, that's... I like uh, I like taking an elite pitcher, uh, sometimes even two. Um, I did not do that in this one. I just took the one. Um, but I, I, I mean, to me, if I'm not going to take DeGrom, um, which I haven't yet, but probably will in, uh, in the main event. Um, I mean, to me, Burns is safer than DeGrom and almost as good. I know you said in uh, in the Wise Guy Baseball sort of, uh, I don't know what you call it, it's a, a draft that you sent me. Uh, one of your discussions was the whole idea of a starting pitcher actually being more impactful on the overall score of a fantasy baseball team than even the best hitter. And uh, given that, it seems like a no-brainer to go pitcher first if you can find one of the one of the really top ones. The the issue is that people raise is, isn't it risky to, to grab a pitcher? And we've been through this a million times before. Was DeGrom available to you when you took Burns, or was Burns pretty much it? Uh, DeGrom was available. Um, but I think I'm going to go for DeGrom in the main event. Um, and I I want to split the difference. I don't want to put all my eggs in DeGrom's basket because of the... Because, hell, I mean, he may miss the whole season. I mean, he seems to be okay. His MRIs came out clean. And he was so fantastic when he was out there. Um, so I think I want a piece of that, but not to... Well, whether in your own drafts so far or following the coverage in the media of other drafts, uh, which is uh, absolutely endemic these days, uh, what have you seen this draft season that has surprised you or at least raised your eyebrows a little? How soon the closers are going. I I have to say I'm delighted. Um, That's, you know, Hendricks and 
Hader going in the second or third round. That's two more great players that I get to choose from that are out there. And uh, I don't understand why people are doing it. Uh, I, I think that they people tend to panic over saves and stolen bases. And I don't see any reason to panic over either one of them. And is there a trend or situation you think drafters are still missing that uh, possibly could be exploited by other drafters? Well, I'm not sure because uh, uh, one thing that I'm really trying to do make a make a point. It's not a new point. Is that quantity is quality? I, I mean, I I think that was the great Steve Moyer who originally put it that way, but it goes back a long way. It goes by. I mean, my old partner John Benna and dear friend has always advocated that. John Coleman, going back to Irwin Swilling and Len Melnick, they quantity is quality. And I think that one of the things that, I mean, some people definitely do it, but one of the things that they key in on is who is going to play more this year than he did last year. And uh, if you can, key those guys in the, in the tiebreaker situation. Uh, that's what I'm trying to do this year. Jason Gray made quite a career in uh, in Tout Wars just uh, going with that quantity equals quality formula, just pile up the plate appearances, pile up the at-bats, and the rest will take care of itself. And uh, he was a very consistent high performer in those leagues. Of course, he's now in the Tampa Bay Rays organization, I believe, as a scout, and uh, he was a really good fantasy player. And he, he was on this whole idea of, you know, just take the boring veteran who's going to get his 550 uh, plate appearances over the hot flash who might get 375. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's especially a great strategy to use in uh, NL leagues and AL leagues, but it also works in mixed leagues, and uh, especially in terms of the thing of who is going to play more this year than he did last year, because that person is going to be the projections most of the time. And and I think that that's, of course, that everyone is so keyed into projections that anything that we can do to spot the people who are going to beat them, either way, and the people who are going to fail to meet them, uh, that's that's to our advantage. I seem to remember that you said in, in the um, wise guy that you put out this year that I think is also being reproduced, at least in part, in uh, at The Athletic, and we can talk about that later, but I seem to recall reading something about how uh, uh, there's a kind of a corollary to the idea of amassing plate appearances in amassing innings and getting pitchers who have uh, you know, fairly good numbers over, even if they're not as good as uh, the better pitcher, if there's more innings involved, that, that it actually works to your benefit. Even if you think you're, you're gathering up a, a higher ERA, you're actually in the balance of things, somehow uh, improving your team with a, with a lesser pitcher but more innings. How does that work? Yeah. Well, it works because if you're getting, if the averages, the decimals are still really good and you're getting them in more innings, they can have just as much or even a touch more impact on your overall staff ERA. Um, I mean, it, it's a close call. The, the decimals still have to be really good. But I mean, on a roto team last year, there was not that much difference between taking uh, uh, Wheeler over Burns even though Burns had the better decimals because Wheeler still had really good decimals, but in more innings. So, yes, it definitely worked. I guess in that case, it's analogous to taking a 600-plate appearance 
batter, even if his batting average is five or six points under the alternative, who's only going to get 400 plate appearances, then the impact because of the amount of uh, of innings or, or at-bats increases, and that seems to make sense. Uh, speaking of the athletic, anything new that, now that you guys are in the New York Times family? I feel that I, like I finally made it. Uh, I'm now respectable. Uh, they don't they don't know I'm there yet. We'll see. <laughs> Things could change. <laughs> but uh, for the moment, uh, I haven't noticed anything different. There's no difference in what I'm doing. And uh, I mean, they're they're really great there. They let me pretty much do whatever I want, even when it gets me in trouble, which I try not to do. But it seems to be unavoidable with my, even my uh, personality and outlook on life. Uh, what the hell can you do? What kind but of no, trouble I'm, have you I, got into? Oh no, I just you know I make an offhand comment and I get accused of this, that, and the other thing. It's not worth talking. But. Um, to answer your question more fully, um, all of my wise guy baseball is going to be in the athletic and they're just doing it. They're just releasing it position by position. And so we're through the infield and catcher now. And then the next will come the outfield in two parts of the starting pitchers in two parts. And I did not do relievers this year. How come? Well, because the athletic has great people. Greg Jewett did a thing about the, rating the relievers already and to be honest with you it makes my life that much easier to to write instead of writing a hundred times gee he could close if he got saved you know if the manager put him out there uh, I mean, you can say that about a, probably a hundred pitchers um, and I usually do wind up saying that so um, and it's so arbitrary and it's so uh you know, there's a lot of, uh, well, this guy's the best pitcher in their bullpen, so he's going to close, which is a fallacy, um, uh, even if true. Um, but, yeah, it just makes life a little easier. And I probably will do a, a, an article about reliever strategy for this year, uh, how it differs from, from previous years or how it's the same, previous, which I think it mostly is. At The Athletic, they ran a short series getting a lot of you guys who cover baseball and fantasy baseball to weigh in on uh, a common topic about this time of the year, sleepers for 2022. Uh, among the hitters, your choice was uh, Jorge Mateo in Baltimore. He's a shortstop infielder, utility-type guy. What do you like about Jorge Mateo? Well, I think he played well after he was traded to the Orioles. I think he's going to get a full shot. They have no competition. He's got blazing speed. Um so, and he's available as a reserve pick in mixed leagues. And I think that's exactly where, where you want a guy like that, who's probably going to be a more or less one dimensional speedster, but should provide the stolen base because he really does run well. He's a right handed hitter. Any concerns about him or other right handed hitters in Baltimore, given that they're really pushing the left field fence out, uh, I think, up to 30 feet? And it's a very unusual configuration. Uh, I looked at a picture of it the other day, Gene, and the right, uh, the left field foul pole seems to be exactly where it was before, but then the fence runs almost straight back to 30 feet, and there's this giant notch that's been cut into the left uh, and left center field area, kind of that pushes back into what used to be uh, seats, and it's 30 feet or so going back. It, I think it varies slightly as they work their way around towards center field. 
and they've raised the the fence height by five feet. So all of a sudden, what used to be a, a little bit of a, a an easy poke for right-handed hitters to left field is not so not so easy anymore. How are you adjusting for that? Uh, I am definitely knocking five home runs off every Orioles hitter, a right-handed hitter anyway. Um, lefties should not be that much effective, but even they will be too a little bit. Um, I, and knocking five home runs off them may be conservative, because as you say, that's an extreme adjustment. Um, on the other hand, uh, it makes John Means a pretty attractive pitcher this year. I mean, he's a fly baller, and he's managed to beat the ballpark for the most part so far. This year, assuming he doesn't get traded, which is, I guess, pretty likely, um, he moves up. So, yes, I take it very seriously. The uh, second sleeper article I saw was uh, writer's picks for pitching sleepers, and you picked Ken Giles of Seattle, and I really like the analysis here. What was your thinking? Well, what I said was when, when he was signed last year, I mean, it was everyone was saying, well, he's going to be the closer in 2022, and here we are in 2022, and what has changed? Why isn't he he's the closer? Um, so I'm taking him as the closer, and I know that uh, it's not 100% carved stone yet, but he's a good pitcher. He's got closing experience. They don't have another uh, pitcher like that. I, I'm, I'm going to assume he's the closer until somebody – points out otherwise, and if it turns out not to be true, well, then I'm going to scramble like we always seem to wind up scrambling for saves anyway, no matter how well we have it figured out in March. There is some legitimate concern, though, Gene, about what looks like is going to be quite a deep and solid Seattle bullpen that Giles will therefore have a somewhat short leash if he blows two or three saves early. All of a sudden, they start scrambling around looking for alternatives, and those alternatives are there, guys like Seawald and so forth. They might end up even in some kind of committee, which is what all the cool kids are doing. So how much concern or uh, adjustment do you have to make to Giles based on the factors that they've improved their overall bullpen since last year? What you say is true, and um, at least it might be true. The other thing to consider, though, is coming back from injury, the one-inning, ninth-inning role is perfect as far as not, uh, not overworking pitchers. Um, but as I say, if it does, he's not available, you don't have to take him high. I mean, he's still, he's flying up the boards, but he's not, he's still easily available as a number two closer. And uh, I, I don't mind, you know, if I have to uh, scramble to replace my number two closer, okay. You know, I don't want to do it, but it seems to be no matter the best laid plans of mice and men, half the time you wind up doing it anyway. Um, so I'm not going to sweat my roster slot or waste a higher pick on a, a more proven and more dependable player when I could get him at the 15th or 16th round easily. So. Well, we mentioned that you're uh, producing a version of Wise Guy Baseball that's being kind of doled out in position-by-position uh, position fashion at The Athletic, and of course everybody should go check that out. But in the meantime, let's uh, scoop yourself by uh, going through a list ourselves I'm sure they won't entirely overlap. So let's start with catchers. Before we get rolling, how do you think the catcher marketplace looks compared to past seasons? I've been seeing some catchers go real early. I have too, and I very rarely would do it. Uh, I, I think I would, in a best ball format, I would take Sal Perez the second round, maybe. Um, but I just think that 
generally speaking, unless a guy is a real superstar, I'm not going to give up those kind of stats to get the to get the position to get the position edge. Um, I think there are good catchers available lower down. A couple of guys I really like, um, and so I am again. I'm glad one of the people do it, and I don't think much has changed. And it seems to me that every year, you know, people still take uh, JT Rio Muto in the third round, and he. He has not delivered anything close to third round value, even though he's a great player. Not knocking him, um, but I'm not going to. Uh, I'm not going to give up Teoscar Hernandez for JT Real Muto, and there's better than that available. It's an interesting point. When I went through the exercise this year, I was looking at you know various catchers at various points in the draft where they seem to be going by ADP, and then looking at outfielders to by happenstance, coinciding with your Teoscar Hernandez example. And what I found was, I thought that if you looked at taking a catcher in the third and an outfielder in the ninth versus the opposite, that you actually ended up suffering a little bit because the outfielder down there wasn't uh, as... The fall-off to that catcher was greater than the fall-off from the outfielder, so you would be better off taking the... uh, outfielder at that point because he's way better than the catcher at that point is there some flaw in that logic that i don't pick up yeah it never works out that way i mean there are always catchers who surprise and wind up in the in the top five or so and also of course it depends on which outfield you took in the ninth round i mean you could get a you know your basic solid guy okay um but there's a lot of uh, uh, drafts have been won with outfielders in the ninth round before who delivered third or even first round value once in a while. Um, and then, of course, there's the additional injury risk that all catchers carry. So that you know, has to be figured into it. Now, I want to make one exception here. To take, there is one way I think that it makes sense to take a catcher and stay in the third round. And that's if you're forsaking pitching early. Because then, if you're really loading up on offense, you have to load up. You can't throw catcher away. You have to get the catcher there. Um, so, in that situation, if you're not dumping pitching, but but avoiding pitching early, then I think it can make sense to take a catcher in the third round of necessity. That was my plan going into TGFBI was to hold off on pitching uh, through the early rounds and try to load up my infield, as I mentioned earlier. And I took Will Smith in the third round and ended up with Kevin Gosman as my ace in the fifth. And then I picked up a bunch of guys in kind of the middle rounds, Verlander among them, which I thought was a real get. So I guess my question is, going back to my original supposition, I take Will Smith and I don't get some kind of outfielder in that round. But when I take an outfielder later, he's going to be way better than whatever catcher's available in that same round. And so the net seems to be that I'm better off with Will Smith plus ninth round outfielder than I would be with ninth, with third round outfielder plus ninth round pitcher. And it looks that way when I look at what other other guys did in the league. It looks like that's correct. But I don't know because when when you talk about it and say it isn't correct, that makes me worry. Well, I mean, I I happen to like Wilson Contreras, um, who's going a lot later than Rio Muto, and I think that Wilson Contreras has a 
pretty decent chance to be the best catcher this year. Um, later on, I, I like Eli, I love Elias Diaz. Um, I think that he's going to definitely be top 10 and rather easily could be top five. Um, as far as outfielders, I mean, I got Giancarlo Stanton in the eighth round. I got Michael Conforto in the 12th round, Jorge Soler in the 14th round. And to me, these guys are all uh, pretty darn good players. So um, it depends on who you get, you know, really. I mean, that's always what it comes down to. It's not the strategy, it's the player. That's certainly true. There's an element of uh, dice throwing at every round because nothing's for sure. But it seems like when you say, hey, look, Conforto in the 12th and guys like that seems to be making my point that at that point in the draft, drafting a catcher is way less likely to deliver what a 12th round Conforto might deliver. And that's why I did it. But uh, anyway, what did you make of the uh, whole uh, Adley Rutschman situation? You said whether to take a flyer on a guy who's not sure to start the year in the big leagues in Baltimore depends heavily on what kind of league you're in. What are the right and wrong leagues for looking at uh, Adley Rutschman? Uh, AL leagues are the leagues where I would avoid him. I mean, of course, in keeper leagues, he's long gone, so that's not a you know it's not an issue for those people. But in redraft only leagues, I I'm not going to start the season with a hole at catcher. Now, if he's announced as the regular, fine. Then he's a, you know, $12, $13 player. Uh, but if he's not, if he starts in the minors, those stats that you're getting in an only league are going to be pretty putrid. The backup, you know, the backup catcher pool is not a place where you want to go fishing. And you got to be really, really lucky to, to get anything of value. You can wind up with a minus slot. You know, a terrible batting average and just, you know, trace elements of other stats. And that, that's a minus slot. You, you can't do it. So, but in a mixed league, the backup pool is doubled and you should be able to get somebody who's not good, but at least won't kill you. What do you make of the catching situation in Toronto? They seem to have four catchers coming back from last year, uh, Jansen, Kirk, McGuire, and Austin Riley. And then you have the possibility that Gabe Moreno, who's a quite a, a, an advanced catching prospect who did really well last year, could come up if he has a hot start in the minor leagues. Uh, what are you doing with that Toronto catching situation, or are you just avoiding it altogether? Uh, well, again, in mixed leagues, I'll avoid it altogether. In, in an only league, though, last year what they did was they, they split the catching three ways, uh, and which is a really interesting way to go about doing it. I've been kind of advocating what the, the Braves did for a while and the Nats did for a while successfully, which was basically splitting the catching between two guys. Now, dividing it up over three guys might be even better. If you, you get three guys who are a little bit above average, you're beating the other team every time they use a backup catcher, which is almost 25% of the games. If somebody gets hurt, you lose nothing. And in the case of Toronto, all three of the catchers, they haven't, been, they haven't really done very much, but they all could. You know, there is a path for each of them to do better. Um, if they, But if they do the same thing, then that wipes all of them out for mixed leagues with the possible exception of uh, Alejandro Kirk if he gets DH at bats. But in an only league, 
one of them is guaranteed to cost a dollar. And if you're getting a third of the playing time for one dollar, I'm going to take you if it's Reese McGuire. The other thing about Toronto's situation is, is that, uh, Kirk may not start in the majors. Um, he's got options and McGuire does not. Um, so that's definitely a factor. So I, uh, if, you, if you're a dollar catcher guy, I definitely have my eyes on Reese McGuire. I've seen a fair amount of argument, and this is just an indication of the kind of arguments we fantasy players get into, but Cal Raleigh, the uh, Seattle um, prospect catcher, I think we could still safely call him, is he worth a reserve round flyer? Some people say yes, a lot of people say no. Normally I would not take a catcher as a reserve. I think I would make an exception for him and, um, and for what's the guy at San Diego. I forget his name. Capizano. I would take those guys as reserve picks, especially if I had a dollar catcher or two dollar catcher. Because, uh, I mean, in the case of Raleigh, he's got massive power. I think it's 50-50 whether he completely craps out. There is that live possibility. But when you have that, he's not that far from being the regular, and he has massive power. So I think it's worth a, a reserve pick in, in only leagues or in very deep mixed leagues, you know, the in a D.C. where you're picking 50 guys, I think you pick after round 30. This year again at Baseball HQ Radio, we're going back to Boones and Baines, but in this instance, Gene, I thought we could do a Boone and a Bane after each position. Uh, uh, we'll call a Boone a guy who's uh, good value at the ADP, a Bane the guy who's poor value at his ADP. Who's your Boone catcher? Uh, well, I mentioned them both. Uh, Wilson Contreras, and Elias Diaz. Uh, I don't know if people, I don't think people realize how really good Diaz was after he finally won the job. Um, he hit for average and he hit for power. He's not a big strikeout guy. and it, I mean, his power is moderate, but Coors is going to help that, and Coors is going to help him with the strikeouts too. So I think Elias Diaz is going to hit, you know, 280 with 20 homers and with the production that he would associate with that. And a Bain, somebody who's being overdrafted? Um, well, we talked about Rio Muto. It's not that I don't like him, but I just, you know, at the ADP of 43, I think that's a little high. I'm a little skeptical of Dalton Varsho. Uh, I understand why people are taking him, but my only warning is, yes, he's an outfielder and qualifies as a catcher, but if he doesn't hit, then that's going to go by the boards. So I don't have any really strong veins at, at catcher, but those are the two little, little worried. At first base, you have Matt Olson keeping company with Freddie Freeman in large part because of one specific change in Olson's metrics profile. He literally seems to have stopped striking out. How sustainable is Olson, who cut his K rate almost literally in half from 2020 to 2021? That's that's a phenomenal achievement. And even if he does regress, I think he's got a, a high floor under him. I don't think his batting average is going to go below 250, very live for 40 home runs. Um, probably going to get traded. Uh, love to see him in Yankee Stadium, of course. Um, and they really need him. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that even if it's not quite real, you don't do like that by accident. It is definitely an improvement in his game. And even with regression, he's a 
really solid power at first base. You say the ageless wonder Yuli Gurriel in Houston is actually defying the baseball gods and trending upward at his advanced age in some key offensive metrics. What are the metrics, and how are you looking at Yuli Gurriel for this year? Well, um, his hard hits were up, his walks were up, his strikeouts were down. Not just a little bit in all cases, but it, it may not even be real, but it is evidence that he's not declining. And that's that we can safely say. Now, I'm not really thrilled with his power potential because his, um, his ground ball rate increased, but I think he's going to still hit close to 300, and um, in, a, in a good lineup, he's going to have plenty of RBIs, so he's, a, he's an excellent corner infield guy next week. Who's your Boone first baseman? Uh Brian Dahlback, I, I don't think he was all that great. Uh, he had a nice second half, slug 6'11", but he's still striking out 30% of the time. He's a fly ball hitter. To me, he's he's more likely to have a very big slump either at the start or sometime in the middle of, uh, of 2022. Uh, he's not going that high. I mean, he's not going to cost you, but he is going to cost you because, you know, Corner, uh, corner is an important position in, uh, in next league. You don't want to give up anywhere. So uh, I'm going to avoid it. So that would be a Bane first baseman. Who's your boon? Oh, I said, oh, I, said uh, I thought you were asking me for my Bane. I'm sorry. Um, I like three guys. I like Pete Alonzo. I like Reese Hoskins. And I like C.J. Crone. Um, all of them, I think, are trending up. I think that all of them have we've yet to see their best. Um, thought it was interesting that last year in the forecaster they called uh, Crone to hit 34 home runs, and that was before he signed with the Rockies. So, and therefore, I consider that to be his baseline. Hoskins got to keep him on the field. I think DHE can only help him. And Alonzo uh, also cut his strikeouts, and of course, he's got the massive power that plays anywhere. Um, so, I think that he's. He's on track to, uh, or to hit home runs as he has hit in the past with a higher average than he's hit in the past. And, uh, so he's a nice little pick. You can get him as your third best hitter, which he seems to be, seems to be very possible. Moving over to the other corner, uh, you, you, they also asked you to rank fantasy third baseman. The top of your, of your list looks pretty chalk. Uh, Ramirez, Devers, Machado. Then you took Adalberto Mondesi fourth, and you said you got him in one of your drafts. And, of course, the question with Mondesi is risk. How do you calibrate the risk-reward situation with Mondesi for 2022? Well, I mean, it's there. Uh, no question about it. Um, but I think I want, a, uh, I want him on a leaves with an overall component. Um, I think that people disparage his hitting unnecessarily. He does have power. Yeah, he's a wild hitter, but he's a very talented hitter. Um, he could lead the major leagues in stolen bases in 120 games. He has played, you know, every day or nearly all, every day before. It's not like he's never done it. Um, he missed 127 games last year. And, you know, that. how often does it happen that that happens twice in a row? And it's not very often. Um, so I think that you know, I would never put all my eggs in his basket for a season. 
uh, I spread the risk around, but I think that on one team, because he so uh, thoroughly sets you up for stolen bases, that you can uh, you can really draft a lot of power after you have him. And if it all works out, then you're in tremendous shape, especially in overall competition. You wrote about Ryan McMahon of Colorado in the middle of the pack of third basemen, but your comment read to me is pretty positive about uh, Ryan McMahon. What do you like about him? Well, he was just really unlucky last year, it seems to me, which is so unusual for a Rockies player. Um, I think he has to play because he's uh, such a really good defensive player at short and third. Um, So I think he's going to play, and I think he's got some Good luck coming to him, and his, his strikeouts improved dramatically. And I think that that's just a dead setup for a for a, a blossom. In getting down to the end of the bunch, everybody's favorite whipping boy this year seems to be Alec Bohm of the Phillies. What do you think Bohm could do at this point to surprise everyone and actually be productive? Well, the first thing he has to do is start pulling the ball. Um, even when he does hit the ball hard, he sees, you know, it's a fly out to right center. He's still a ground ball hitter, and I think that even at his best, I don't think he's going to hit for a lot of power this year. Um, he could hit for average. I think he might benefit from the fact that if they let him DH, because he's such a bad third baseman, I'm not really high on him. Uh, I mean, he's down he's down near the bottom for a reason. I, I'd think twice about even taking him as a reserve in a mixed league. Uh, if, for example, I got the choice of him or J.D. Davis, I'll take J.D. Davis. Um, but I, I think that, yeah, if he starts pulling the ball, he's got the pedigree. Uh, it's not over for him, but I'm not I'm not panting for him. So who's your Boone third baseman at good value? Yeah, well, besides McMahon, uh, Eugenio Suarez I like as a, a high-K, high-fly ball hitter who should rebound this year and may possibly, again, benefit from de-aging um, since he's also not a not a good glove. And when he was really bad last year was when he was playing shortstop. I mean, I don't know if that's just superstition or coincidence, but because um, he's not really good at third either. But uh, if he gets a chance to de-age, it's possible. And then there's just a natural uh, bounce-back effect that, hey, here's a guy who's who could won't help your batting average, but he's very live, 40 home runs. And so uh, this is the year to take him. And your Bain third baseman, a bad value in the draft? I don't have anybody who I really dislike. Uh, I, I think the public is well aware of the dangers of Gavin uh, His OPS was 540 against lefties last year, and that is very dangerous. I mean, I think everybody knows that, but I, I don't have anybody I'm not really... I'm not really down on anybody, but if it's it's anybody that I'm going to avoid this year, it's him. Moving on to second base, your analysis of Kettle Marte makes an important point. Uh, The over-under on how many games he's likely to play looks like is around 120 games. For fantasy managers in mixed leagues, why is that the key point? Because you can fill his injury time with decent numbers. There's a lot, you know, second baseman is not a superstar position, but it's pretty darn deep. And you can get perfectly acceptable stats that will match up 
and give you a winning roster slot. I mean, nobody wants Lurie Guriel or, uh, I mean, excuse me, uh, uh, what's his name? Larry Garcia. Larry Garcia or Tony Kemp. Um, but you add those, their numbers, 35 games, to the 120 of, of Marte, you've got a winning roster slot. And that by no means exists, exhausts the list of second basemen. So um, that's why in a, in a mixed league, I'm really happy to get a to get a guy like Marte. And there are others, too. I mean, if you, second base is a deep position, and uh, it's, it's full of acceptable, if not spectacular, stats. And acceptable, if not spectacular, risk. And I, I was thinking when I was reading this, uh, Gene, that the other aspect of drafting Kettle Marte expecting 120 games is you might get 145 because he may just ch- ex- surprise everybody and stay healthy. Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, it's not like these guys don't want to play, you know, except the, in the rarest of circumstances. So, yes, and he's got plenty of upside in it, not to, and he's done it before more than once. You had Jorge Polanco of the Twins rubbing shoulders with uh, some of the big names at second base, Altuve, Merrifield, and Marte, and yet he seems to be perennially underdrafted rounds and rounds after those guys. What are fantasy managers repeatedly missing about Jorge Polanco? I don't know. Um, maybe it's that he's you know, sort of buried up the Twins. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, he's... He's done everything that he had to do, including show the kind of power that people didn't really expect him to show. But now that he has done it, I mean, you factor in a little regression. And on the other hand, his batting average, I mean, he's hit, you know, he's a 276 hitter, and he's hit on the low end of that range. Maybe some of it's a trade-off of power. But, I mean, he's got a, he's got a great lineup slot. There's nothing he can't do. Toss it a few steals. Uh, I don't know why people don't like him. Other people not liking him is uh, possibly also a, a buying opportunity for those who do like him. And uh, as you said, there's plenty to like. Uh, drafters seem to be dreaming of Jazz Chisholm ringing up a 20 homer, 40 stolen base season, or maybe more than one such season. But you think there's a fundamental issue here that could very well inhibit him from making those kinds of numbers. What's your issue with Jazz Chisholm? He swings at too many balls out of a strike zone and doesn't swing at balls in the strike zone. And to me, this suggests that he's having a pitch recognition problem. And now, of course, that's not the, the last word. He could beat it, but it's a problem, and it may not solve itself over this off season. In fact, it may take years for him, and indeed, he may never solve it. Um, so i just be careful about him. I don't think he's going crazy high, but perhaps a little bit inflated. So who's your boon second baseman, all of this considered? Uh, Brendan Rodgers. Um he hit 12 home runs on the road in 51 games and three home runs in Coors Field in 51 games. To me, this is like impossible. How could this, how could this happen? Um, and don't forget when you're playing on the road, you, you're playing in different environments. So unless there's something particular to Coors Field that prevents him from hitting and he would be the first hitter in history that this was true of, I have to think that 
he's going to hit more home runs in Coors than on the road this year, which means he's going to hit a lot of home runs. Um, he's also uh, improved. He's not a great defensive player, but he's improved the strikeouts. And, uh, and I think that he definitely showed that he belongs in the major leagues, and he's going at a point where he could really he could be a difference maker this year. And who's your Bane second baseman, Gene? Again, I don't have anybody that I really am down on. Kike uh, Hernandez, I think, probably, just because he's not really a leadoff hitter, and if he doesn't bat leadoff, uh, he's not going to produce as much. Uh, and so, uh, you know, he's not that he's going that high or anything like that, but it just uh, there are other places where I would rather park my car. Moving to shortstops, you have uh, Bo Bichette, Bogarts, Anderson, one, two, three. But some listeners might be surprised that you put Wander Franco fourth ahead of Corey Seager and Trevor Story and even Fernando Tatis. Uh, why the big vote of confidence in Wander Franco? Well, I just think, uh, I mean, I'm, basically it's my eyeballs. I mean, this guy, he's got it. There's no question about it. He's going to, I looked at the uh, uh, projections for him and I, I the projections, which are notoriously conservative, that they averaged out to him hitting 292, which I take as hitting 312. Um, and he's got an eye. He, he's got his power really came on. He was not intimidated at all by the major leagues or by the postseason. I just think he's got it and he's going to show it. I don't think he's going to steal a lot of bases, but there's still a few. I mean, I, I, I think he's a superstar already, and you're going to see it this year. You say you're betting on a strong rebound from Glaber Torres after a couple of so-so seasons. Uh, why the optimism on Torres? Because I can't see any reason why he ever slumped to begin with. And he also seemed to pick it up. Uh, he got hurt. He started to get hot, and then he got hurt. But when he came back, he was at least hitting for more average, and he's also running a lot more even when he was not hitting well. So I think that that's, just, that's real. And I think that he's probably going to steal, you could book him stealing 15 bases, which is going to help in his draft spot. And I can't see any reason why he ever slumped. I mean, he's got his strikeout numbers are getting better. Um, you know, some people say it was because of his bad fielding, but he was always a bad fielder and he hit. And plus, you know, all this career action for him. He's only 25 years old. Um, so uh, he's a nice stealth guy. He's, uh, get him while you can. And he's going to go higher next year. Everybody's eager to see Bobby Witt in Kansas City, except maybe the Royals front office. Uh, you say you don't have an issue bidding on Witt as a good major leaguer, five category potential, and a possible instant star. But then you right away countered your own argument by saying the outcome is not bettable. I, I guess that's not exactly the same thing, but why is the outcome not bettable for you? Because he's, uh, I think it was 29% strikeouts in the minor leagues. He could be overmatched to start. Um, in fact, it's fairly likely. Um, he could blow it apart. He's got that kind of talent. But I'm not going to treat anybody, I'm not going to treat anybody as a star player from who has not played in the major leagues yet. He's got to show some star potential. I mean, some star actuality. The star potential is definitely there, that's for sure. Right. All right, Gene, who's your Boone shortstop? Uh, relative to his draft slot, uh, draft slot is Corey Seager. 
I think he's probably going to miss some time, as he usually does, but he's a great hitter. And uh, to be available in the fifth round, he's a foundational hitter. I don't think he takes that much of a hit in Texas. Um, compared to Dodger Stadium, it's it's not a worse place to hit than there, and he's done it there. So uh, Corey Seager is a really solid foundational hitter available. He's probably your third best hitter with a couple of uh, with a couple of pitchers. And who's your Bane shortstop? Not, of course, because I don't like him, but I love him. But Fernando Tatis's shoulder, uh, you know, my experience, and I know I'm not saying I'm a doctor or anything, but when your shoulder starts popping out, it keeps popping out until you get the operation. And to me, I would be surprised if his shoulder doesn't pop out in the spring. Um, and if I'm wrong, and, you know, he's going very high and he's, Obviously, a fabulous talent, you know, worthy of the number one pick overall for sure. But if he's not playing, he's going to get surgery, and I'll take him next year because that's what I just what I think is going to happen. Let's finish up this segment with the outfield. Uh, you noted that fantasy managers are worried about Ronald Acuna's ACL surgery, but you still have him at the top of your outfield table. Why aren't you worried about Ronald Acuna's knee? Because he really wants to run. And if he can, he will. Um, I think this delay of the season helps him, too. Um, he's, he's going neck and neck with Tatis. They're, gonna, they're trying to become the first 50-50 guys, mark my words. Um, or 40-40, even. We don't need 50-50, 40-40. I think they're going at it neck and neck. They're going to push each other. And uh, so I'm, I'm not worried at all about it. Not running as long as his knees in reasonable, reasonably good shape, and that surgery it just seems to be a matter of time to get back, and then and then he'll be fine. I hope. One of the great advances in athletic surgery, I think, is knee surgery. It wasn't that long ago when uh, an ACL tear was pretty much it for a career for a lot of athletes. So talking of risk, uh, a lot of fantasy managers seem to be throwing it out the window when they start bidding on Byron Buxton. Uh, where do you stand on Byron Buxton as a relatively top-level draft pick, third round, fourth round? I've been seeing him. Yeah, I, same as Mondesi. He's the guy that you want somewhere. Um, not everywhere. You can't put all your eggs in his basket, but he's a great player. And I think you should have him somewhere because he could be very possible that he's, you know, a top five pick next year. He has that kind of ability. He's shown that kind of ability. So, yeah, get a piece of him. Don't, not in an AL league, but get a piece of him in a mixed league. You just don't overdo it. In your analysis of Cedric Mullins, you say what you've said before, there is no regression to the mean when there's no mean established. How does that work in general, and how does it work for Cedric Mullins in particular? Well, I mean, last year, as soon as he started hitting, everybody said, oh, he's going to come back to earth. He's going to come back to earth, and they kept on saying it for five months. And finally, he was, you know, he had wiped out any possibility of, sure, he could fall off the earth, and still have a great year, which is why he's going where he's going this year. The only thing you could safely say about him was that he was not a 328 hitter, which nobody's a 328 hitter in today's game. So that's safe to say. But yeah, could he be a 290 hitter? Sure he, sure he can be, and sure he is. Now, I don't want to overdo it with him. I don't think he, I think he's going ahead of a, a few guys that I would take ahead of him. Um, 
because I think he, just because 70% of people don't have as good a year as they did the year before, um, but he's still a really good player, and I would certainly take him in the third round. I think the second is maybe overdoing it a little bit. Earlier you talked about how few gifts that seem to be falling your way in your drafts, uh, but in the uh, wise guy you say Jorge Soler's current ADP of 193 is, and I'm quoting here, one of the more beautiful gifts of 2022. How come? Well, I mean, it's the, the high K fly ball hitter who's on up to me. Um, he was down for a while. His career's kind of weird because he's like two good years, two bad years, two good years, two bad years. That's been his career. And part of it is because of injury, but part of it is just the nature of the beast. And he seems to be coming on strong, and it definitely, you know, carries over from season to season. So, you know, he's a World Series MVP. I know the postseason doesn't matter, except that it does. And um, so to take him at that, at that point is, to me, automatic. You called Lourdes Gurriel a building block hitter. Doesn't even seem like he's really a building block hitter on his own team. So why do you why do you feel that that way about him? Well, I mean, I think he played himself into uh, no question that he's going to be a regular. I, I mean, I I look at his numbers. He had a slow start last year, but he picked it up at the end. And he's just a solid guy. He's not a superstar, but he's going to hit for average. He's going to hit for power. He's in a great lineup. So that's what a building block is to me. And Lords can be on my team after the 10th round on any time. And finally, you have Lorenzo Kane listed as a fifth outfielder in mixed leagues, but not a target at all in National League only. The usual idea, Gene, is that a guy who's rosterable in a mixed is more rosterable in an only league. Why is that not the case for Lorenzo Kane? Well, because of the playing time issue. Uh, I mean, he just can't get him to the field and you in, in only leagues that's where i really want to just bulk up on plate appearances and so he's off limits to me and but you know he can still hit for average steal some bases with an occasional home run so when he's in there he's an asset to a mixed league but you just have to you know be aware of his replacement draft his replacement so who's a boon outfielder for you uh Marcelo Zuna, I think, is, uh, we mentioned Soler already. Um, Ozuna is, uh, another guy coming off who's rebounded and coming off, uh, the low end of his range. And he's not going to miss any time because of the domestic, uh, violence. You know, I don't know what he did, and, uh, but he's not going to miss any time for it. Um, so, I mean, he's a guy that, uh, and he's going way low, so there's very little risk to take. So I'm going to take. And who's your Bane outfielder? Uh, you know, it's funny because you had Jason Collette on last week, and he mentioned Avisel Garcia as one of his boons. And to me, he's a Bane. Um, I don't think anything really changed in his game. Um, he's still swinging at way too many pitches out of the strike zone. He's still swinging and missing. I think it's 18.3%. That's way too high. And then he moves from a, a a good lineup and a great hitter's park to a bad lineup and a bad hitter's park. So he is my bane. 
Well, as I expected, Gene, this has been super interesting so far. Let's take a break so I can get in a couple of uh, Baseball HQ promos, then we'll come back and talk some pitching. Sounds good. Gene McCaffrey is the wise guy of fantasy baseball and a fantasy baseball columnist at The Athletic. He'll be back in just a second, but right now it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Rotisserie Gaming, Matt Cedarholm looks at pairs or groups of players who have the same skills profiles, but sometimes at widely different prices. And Dave Adler reviews the Labor American League-only auction and his new strategy. In Facts and Flukes, analyst Brant Chesser looks at five national leaguers, including Joe Musgrove, A.J. Pollock, and Adbert Alzelay. And Robert Berger looks at five American leaguers, including George Springer, Robbie Ray, and Jonathan Scope. And in scouting coverage, analyst Rob Gordon. Hey, I remember him from Baseball HQ Radio. Rob's going to look at the top starting pitcher prospects who have potential to affect this year's fantasy season, led by Tampa right-hander Shane Baz. And those are just five articles among literally dozens, a small sample of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in Facts and Flukes, news updates in Playing Time Today, and roster forecasting in Playing Time Tomorrow. That really gets rolling when the season gets started, fingers crossed. Buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse. There's injury analysis in Matt Cedarholm's column, The Big Hurt. And, of course, groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, once the season gets rolling, there are tools like player projections updated every day, depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, those potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. So, add it all up. You get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. Welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt here with Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball, and of course a columnist at The Athletic. And Gene, uh, we talked about the hitters in segment one. Let's do the pitchers in segment two, and uh, we'll start with starters. Gene, I got Justin Verlander with the first pick in the eighth round. I think I mentioned that earlier. And from your analysis, it sounds like I made a pretty good pick. What did I do right there? Well, I mean, to me, he's still Justin Verlander as long as he's out there and he seems to be healthy. Uh, He's on a great team. Um, He's not going to hold himself back. Dusty Baker is certainly not going to hold him back. Um, So to me, he's he's a legit ace. If you get him in the eighth round, I don't think you'd sacrifice anything um, except, you know, to maybe Burns and uh, DeGrom. In discussing Jose Barrios, you said uh, last year's conventional wisdom, and I'm hearing the same thing so far this year, is to take a starting pitcher ace or perhaps too early and then forget the highly risky next tier or two. As a strategy, you said this is willful blindness. How so? Well, you could never write off a tier or a, a group of players because they're all different. Uh, there are plenty of great pitchers. Last year, there were plenty of great pitchers in that tier. League winners. You know, Zach Wheeler off the top of my head. Corbett Burns was in that group last year. Um, 
that's what's good. I mean, the, a lot of those guys, yeah, sure, a lot of them crap out. But you pick a tier of starting pitchers, and a lot of them are going to crap out even in the top tier. In the bottom tier, I mean, that's the nature of the beast. Um, it's about the individual player. It's not about the tier. Boy, if you could figure out which guys in tier three were going to move up into tier two and which ones were going to move up into from two to one, you'd be a, a very successful player. Right. Well, that's what we're doing now, right? That's what we're trying to do, that's for sure. And and one guy who maybe fits the bill is uh, Ranger Suarez. You say it seems wrong to rank Ranger Suarez with his teammate Aaron Nola, but you did it. What's the appeal of Ranger Suarez? Well, I mean, if a guy's getting ground balls and heavy strikeouts and few walks, he's going to be good and has a really good chance to be great. This is what Ranger Suarez did, and so I think we have to treat him as if he's not quite an ace pitcher, but an acceptable number two and a really good number three. Number three seems to be where he's going, even even number four for a lot of teams, and I agree with you. I, th- I had Ranger Suarez on my team for half a year or so last year. You say about Tristan McKenzie that erratic is better than bad. How erratic can Tristan McKenzie be before he just is bad, or at any rate unplayable, because the erraticness is pretty much bound to be random and you can't really safely slot him in except against the very weakest of teams? Well, I mean, it's a question of command with him, and he's so talented that you know he's going to throw some gems. I think if you've got him, what you have to do is just uh, don't try to play him. Just throw him out there and take what you get at the end of the year. Take the good with the bad. Because I don't think it matters who he's facing. If he's on, if his command is on, he's going to shut down anybody. Um, And if he's not on, well, he's he's going to get hammered. Um, But once you're at a point where you need not rely on him, say, you know, number five SP or after that, I think you just take him and take the good with the bad. Hope that the command comes because if it does come, He's got elite potential. You said Joe Ryan of the Twins could do something that's relatively rare for starting pitchers, post a sub-one whip with an ERA over four. How does that work? Well, that's what he did. His ERA was 4.5 and his whip was .79, which is not even under one. That's way under one. That's because he's, he's an extreme fly baller. He gives up a lot of home runs. But... As a fly baller, he's not going to give up that many hits. That's the way it works. The extreme fly ballers tend to have higher ERAs relative to their whips, and ground ballers tend to have higher whips relative to their ERAs. Um, and and the thing with Ryan is he looks like a soft tosser, but he's really not. He's just a, a, a big variance velocity guy on his fastball um, with secondary pitches that he really commands very well for a youngster. And so he's a, a, another good back-end guy. I got him in that same draft that I got Verlander in, uh, and I'm pretty pleased about it. I, I like Joe Ryan a lot. A good pre- pedigree prospect as well. Yeah. Sounds like you got a great staff. Um, yeah, I, I think it, it looks pretty good. I'm pretty pleased with it. Uh, Especially not having an ace. Presumably you have the offense to uh, to dominate. 
Well, I, I don't know that'll all come out in the wash, I guess, but uh, I keep right. track of the team and the league projection-wise uh, while I'm running the draft, and I certainly did end up with a really strong offense. And uh, if some of these pitchers come through, then uh, maybe that, that will work, but the pitching's always uh, always a cross your fingers and hope for the best kind of deal and could be a could be disastrous with a you know perhaps a guy like joe ryan has a four or five era and a one four whip you know because they start falling in there in one way or another so you never know let me ask you this is that when you do this do you tend to uh, you know take three or four pitchers as reserves uh, just as you know insurance and uh streaming type of thing is that do you play that way you know, I'm not really a huge believer in streaming because it seems to me like you're trying to time the market, uh, just like the stock market. And most people who are professional investors say you can't do it. You have to make your investments and then uh, stick with them. And I kind of feel that way. But what I did was I grabbed Gosman, I mentioned in the fifth. Then I grabbed a couple of hitters, uh, Jorge Polanco and Yasmani Grandal as my second catcher. And then uh, five straight pitchers, Verlander, Manea, Pablo Lopez, and then a couple of sort of secondary closers in Whitlock and Bednar. And then I grabbed Joe Ryan way down in the 18th round and grabbed Corey Kluber in the 22nd and Devin Williams to kind of round out my staff. And that was all by design. I thought I'm just going to hammer the starting pitching when everybody else has to kind of veer away from pitching because they've already loaded up in pitching and now they feel like they're going to be a little more desperate to get hitting. Right, well, it makes sense. Thank you. Um, coming from you, that's quite a compliment, and I'm uh, glad of it. In the main event, I did your, I did it your way last year, and it, w- it was a disaster for me. I did not <laughs> take a pitch. <laughs> I, I was going to take. I was picking third. And I was going to take Degrom, but he went first. Um, so I took uh, uh, Juan Soto, and then I came back, and ev- all the pitches were gone. Yeah. And so I said, "Oh, what the hell? I might as well zag." But my first pitcher was Steven Strasburg. And I said to myself, well, you know, <laughs> he signed his last big contract. Maybe he's thinking about the Hall of Fame. He's coming off a world championship, and he wants to repeat and show that he was no fluke. Hey, uh, yay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because I also had Wheeler. I, I got and Julio Urias I got. And those were two really good pitchers. But then, of course, I got Dustin May, and I lost him, and it it just wasn't enough. So, anyway. You took a look at Huascar Inoa's fastball heat map at Baseball Savant, and you found it problematic. What's the wrong with uh, Huascar Inoa's fastball? It seems to be that uh, the hot zone is the entire strike zone, and that is not a good thing. I mean, it basically means any time he throws a fastball for a strike, uh, he's likely to get walloped. Um, and that's probably why he doesn't throw that many fastballs. But I don't see uh, how you could really be successful. Uh, it, well, I mean, you can be, but it's a tough nut to crack if you, if you don't have an effective fastball in the major league. So and he, until something changes, he's not high on my list. Success seems to require a pretty good command of a pretty wide range of, uh, of secondary pitches. A guy like Joe Ryan has that, for example, and, uh, right. and uh, that's something you have to look at. If the fastball's not working, then it's not going to work unless 
and increasingly what we're seeing is is pitchers whose fastballs are not their primary pitch. They're being right. coached, and, they're, and the uh, analytics suggest if your curveball is your best pitch, throw it more often. <laughs> you know, it seems like sure. after 120 years of baseball, somebody would have figured that out back in about 1915. <laughs> right. But, right, right. Well, I mean, with in Inova's case, he's got a good slider, but, you know, there's no such thing as a one-pitch pitcher since Bruce Souter. So, uh, or Mariana Rivera, I guess. And, uh, you're certainly not going to make it as a starter, so uh, until you know it comes up with something, or you know, a better changeup, or a spot of fastball, or a, this, that, or the other thing, uh, he's not on my list. Reminds me of a story from Ball Four of the Great Baseball Book. I read it every year around this time, and. And there's a story about uh, Jim Bouton finally getting into an intelligent pitching conversation with the Seattle Pilots pitching coach Sal Magley, of course, in the Hall of Famer. And uh, Sal Magley was trying to impress upon Jim Bouton, you can't be a one-pitch pitcher, even if the pitch is a knuckleball, which is what Bouton was trying to do. And they talked for a while, and uh, finally Bouton asks him, uh, you know, when you used to go out there and we're really on. What did you use to get out the the uh, the other guys? And uh, and Sam Agley says ninety seven snappers. <laughs> so much for a one pitch pitcher. <laughs> right, right. Sal the barber. Sal the barber Magley. Yep. In your analysis of Dallas Keuchel, you said uh, uh, bankable assets don't get enough consideration, and he has them. All of them related to him not beating himself. How does this work, and how much should it affect our affection for Dallas Keuchel, considering his 5% strikeout minus walk metric? Yes, that is pathetic. Um, You can't have two of them. But the thing about Dallas Keuchel is that he does not beat himself. He doesn't doesn't walk guys. He's a great fielder. He doesn't hit batters. He induces double plays. He never balks. Um, What am I forgetting? Uh, Everything that a pitcher, he holds base runners. Everything that a pitcher can do that's not calculated by the metrics, Keuchel does well. Um, Now, and those things aren't calculated in the metrics because for the most part, they don't mean that much. But together, they mean a lot. And although, and I also make exception for ground balls, the ability to induce ground ball double plays is a skill and it has big in-game impact. Now, that said, you don't want... You certainly can't have two Dallas Keuchel's active on your team at any time. But if it comes to the point where you can use them in two start weeks only, or the occasional if you're forced to use them in one start weeks, he's a good and he's on a great team. Uh, so I think that you could also average out his ERAs for the last two years, and you'll get his career numbers, which is, I think, what we should expect. Which is, you know, not a great pitcher or anything, but a decent pitcher who can help you on the back end. And he's going to cost a buck in a lot of leagues. Well, we're four rounds into the reserve in the TGFBI draft, and nobody's taken him yet. And I think that's probably going to be the case in a lot of instances. But when we were talking about pitching on Saturday afternoon, the first pitch Florida online deal was going on, and I was participating with Jason Collette again and uh, Alex Fast from Pitcher List, and we were talking about how under-recognized team construction is. Not team construction of your fantasy team, but the team construction of the player you're considering. And one of the things that came up was, does the team score runs? Does it have a good bullpen who can close out games? 
And when you're talking about the White Sox, you're talking about a team that's going to score runs, and they have a terrific bullpen. Yes. I, I mean, I think they're going to walk all over the AL Central this year. Um, they're a very potent team. They, I think they need one more left-handed bat, um, which I'd be very surprised if they did not get before the season starts. They may very well. And you mentioned the AL Central. Another advantage for a guy like Dallas Keuchel is that there's a lot of games against, let's face it, nobody's mistaking the the uh, Kansas City Royals for the 27 Yankees. Yeah, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, there are, except for the White Sox, there are no good hitting teams at the AL Central. With the kind of, eh, okay. Not the Indians, not the Royals. The Tigers are better but not really good so yeah i mean it's a factor well there is one good hitting team in the al central and he's pitching for it Uh, another plus right so who's a boon starting pitcher for you uh, among the many possible boons as far as value for a draft pick well we mentioned verlander already and he would as the top of my list now going down a little bit we also mentioned john means who I, I already is a good pitcher, gets no respect at all. But, you know, a big reason why the Orioles are so terrible is because they don't have any pitching. And, uh, you know, their offense is not really good, but it's not terrible either. I think the Beans is already a good pitcher, and he has an excellent chance to be better this year. Further down, uh, as a reserve pick, I like Nate Pearson. It's like, whatever happened to hot prospect Nate Pearson? He's, you know, he's still a hundred mile an hour guy, if he's back, you know, if he's healthy, he's going to get a spot and it may take a little while, but he's the guy that he's high on my reserve list. for next week. I got sniped on Nate Pearson in the reserve rounds. The, uh, I think the knock on him is a health issue. He's a big stringy guy. He's very tall and he's very, very lean. And the issue that held him out was called a sports hernia, but I read the other day in one of the Toronto media that uh, it wasn't a, a hernia per se. It was like a detachment of, of either a tendon or a ligament in his um, sort of groin and hip area. Right. And caused by the fact that he is so stringy and lean, he puts a lot of pressure on, on the connecting tissue, a lot of leverage from those big long limbs and stuff like that. That would be a worry for me. Uh, and I was just thinking when you were talking about John Means that he's kind of the uh, the other side of the coin of a guy like Keichel in that he's pitching in a very hard division to pitch in. And uh, he the team has a terrible bullpen. Like everything that you could want, yeah. he doesn't have. Yeah, that's true. However, he is getting the ballpark edge this year. The other thing is he's already succeeded with all those disadvantages. Um, so, you know, he's been pitching in the AL East. And he's been doing well in the AL East. So he is a good pitcher. Um, yes, the, the, the bullpen. The fact that the bullpen is terrible uh, is probably going to uh, lead his manager to leave him in longer, which is might get him the extra win here and there, and, and help his decimals. So there's a quantity issue there. Um, I wouldn't take John Means out to bring in whatever parade of stiffs the Orioles <laughs> have with 7.8 ERAs. Yeah. And there's, there's, more, there's more than two. You know. Is this a bullpen or a George Romero movie? <laughs> <laughs> Who's your Bane pitchers? Where he's going, Chris Sale. Um 
And I know he came back, and I know he's throwing hard, but looks to me like right-handed hitters, basic average right-handed hitters were having their way with him. And makes me very nervous about taking him as my number two, which is what you have to do. Um, even, or in your case, if you were waiting on pitching, not taking it to race. No way I'm going to do that. I'm just, I don't see, uh, I mean, to me, he's not that different from Steven Strasburg, who's going, you know, 150 picks later. Um, so, uh, Chris Sale. And Gene, you mentioned that you didn't cover relievers. Uh, this time around, I uh, just like your quick thoughts on the uh, whole Hater Hendricks going in the second round situation. Yeah, well, I think that's great. Um, as long as I don't have to take him, because um, it, it leaves other great players for me to take. I, I, there's no guarantee. I mean, there's guarantee that they're going to be good if they're out there, uh, but there's no guarantee that they're going to lead the league in saves. Um, that's what the category is. So. I mean, I think there are guys who are, if not quite that good, substantially as good, available much later. And so, uh, please go ahead and keep taking them with the second and third man. It's interesting when I've talked to other people, they say, not only is uh, Hader and Hendricks going to get you all those saves, which is a questionable prospect anyway, but even assuming they do, the, the other argument that they make is they're really, really good ratios. And they seem to ignore the fact that those really good ratios are only in 50 or 55 innings, which really limits their ability to affect the overall ratios, your decimals that you get on a full 1,000-inning uh, fantasy team. Sure. I mean, they they do give you extra strikeouts, but they're by no means alone in that. I mean, uh, Diaz will probably strike out just as many guys. Um, Giovanni Gallegos on the Cardinals is perfectly capable of ranking right up there with them. And he's on a, another guy who's on a great save situation. As far as you can ever predict saves, I mean, what do you have? A good team, low scoring environment where there's fewer games decided by three runs or fewer. I mean, Gallegos has that. Um, and he's substantially as good, if not exactly as good as those two guys. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I just don't see it. It's not worth the investment. How do you consider a guy like Mark Melanson, who has the closer role seemingly locked in, and despite a career-long sort of underwhelming set of skills, he's been a pretty successful closer over the years, but now he's on a lower-ranked team that's going to get fewer wins, which necessarily leads to fewer saves. And without those top-rated skills, we usually associate with the best successful closers. What do you think of Mark Melanson? I had him everywhere last year. I had him, I think, on every single team. And he led the major leagues in saves. Um, so I was very happy about that. I'm not so happy this year. I mean, he's moving to a worse hitter's park, a much worse team. It, I used to completely avoid closers on teams that lost 95 or more games. But now that saves are more spread out, that's not as true as it used to be. A guy who gets 28 saves is, you know, is pretty playable as a number two closer. So I'm not that worried about that. Um, the skills, yes, they do worry. Yes, he can lose his job in, in, in a better hitter's park. It's still, you know, it's not the hitter's park that it used to be, but still hitter's park. And so uh, no, those guys are not high on my list. The guys still, and given the choice between a, a guy on a good team and a guy on a bad team, I'm still going to take the guy on a good team. And finally, Gene, which 
next guy in line closer candidates do you like for 2022? Well, first of all, there's a number of undecided uh, situations. The the first guy that I want is the closer, whoever he is, on the Padres. Um, they're, you know, again, good team, low-scoring environment. That's perfect. Um, I don't know who that pitcher is going to be. Um, a few other teams are in the, the same boat. But as for guys who I think are number twos now, uh, Michael Fulmer on the Tigers. Um, Richard Rodriguez hasn't signed yet. Um, but I wouldn't be at all surprised to see the Padres or the Dodgers sign him and close. So he, as a reserve pick, I think he's very live. And the guy that you picked, um, uh, Gary Whitlock on the, on the Red Sox, I think that he's going to be, uh, he'll be, he'll be fine if he, uh, if they give him the job. Pierce Johnson turned up at, at the top of the bullpen list at Roster Resource. They actually list him as the closer, but boy, there's a lot of other names in there that uh, seem to be bandied about. Luis Garcia, Emilio Pagan was the closer there a while ago. Uh, Robert Suarez, a lot of people are interested in him. And of course, Denelson Lamette, who's ostensibly a starter, but I know that there's a lot of speculation that because he's so fragile, that it might make sense to bring his overwhelming sort of stuff uh, into the bullpen for short bursts and maybe keep him, keep him alive a little longer. Yeah, it didn't work that well last year, but that doesn't mean that he can't snap into focus. He's all about command. And as I say, whoever it is that gets that job is the guy that we want. I, I don't know that it makes a lot of sense to speculate in, in uh, shallower mixed leagues, maybe in the, you know, in the DC where you're picking 50 guys. It might make sense to fool around there, but I think we wait and see what happens and, uh, and just be ready to pounce on that guy. He's probably going to be a fab guy, but be ready to pounce on him. So to recap your boons and banes, uh, your boons were Wilson Contreras and Elias Diaz, um, Alonzo and C.J. Crone and Reese Hoskins, Eugenio Suarez, Corey Seager, Marcelo Zuna, and Jason Verlander, John Means, and Nate Pearson. The Baines, uh, J.T. Rio Muto, Bobby Dahlbeck, uh, Kevin Biggio, Fernando Tatis, because of the injury risk, of course, of Asail Garcia, and Chris Sale. And at second base, Brendan Rogers was the boon, Kike Hernandez the bane. Gene, this has been terrific. Tell our listeners where they can keep up with Gene McCaffrey. Well, I'll be dropping uh, the outfielders and the starting pitchers at the Atlantic, and Hopefully keep on uh, doing a weekly column after that through the season. And I hope you read it. I hope you subscribe. It's a, well worth it if you've been thinking about doing it. There's some great content on there. You get Eno Sarish. You get all kinds of wonderful Michael Salfino. And uh, it's well worth it. Gene, this has been terrific. It's always fun to talk with you. I'm really glad we had the opportunity of a few technical difficulties at the start trying to hook up between dead phones and dead microphones and what have you, but we got her done, and I'm glad we did. Uh, I hope I get to talk to you again during the year. Yeah, you too, Patrick. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you and, and the Baseball HQ subscribers. Go, guys, go. That's what's so funny. Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball, also writes about fantasy baseball at The Athletic. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 8th. 
Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number five of the 2022 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for the show, Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy, always an excellent fantasy baseball analyst and a great guy who's a ton of fun to talk with. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I'm kind of fun to talk with sometimes, and I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you catch your pods. We're working on Spotify. And leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. That really helps us find new listeners, and new listeners satisfy the bean counters and let us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with another expert interview edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk to you Friday, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.